This is a Radio.com original. and welcome to a new edition of Talking About Cars, where it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities to car personalities, others in the car industry, and more. I'm Randy Cardoon. We start this edition with sad news. News from southeastern Oregon that TV host, car builder, and car racer Jesse Combs died in an attempt to set a new land speed record in a jet car. Combs grew up in Minnesota in the Dakotas, has been seen co-hosting Mythbusters, car shows like All Girls Garage, Overhauling, and 4x4 Extreme. Back in 2016, Jesse visited the Talking About Cars studio, and if you haven't heard that interview before, we're going to play it again here. So you can find out just what we did. Find out about what makes this car girl tick, and when she realized she was a car person. This is a conversation of topic that I can't ever seem to really pinpoint exactly. And I think it's maybe because, you know, my great grandmother used to race cars and she was one of those that she was a jazz pianist and she would travel around the United States and she would put way more miles on cloth tires than they were ever rated for. And she eventually became the spokesperson model for Goodrich Tires long before they became BF Goodrich Tires. So she was in their advertisements in the Sunday Times many, 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 many moons ago. Do you have like some of the old uh, advertisements framed somewhere? I do. Do you? I really do. Yeah. Normally they're on my phone, but I got a new phone. So yeah, and I show people, I'm like, this is my great grandmother. Well, she passed away about four months after I was born. And my mom swears up and down that her spirit jumped right into me because she always says that she's like, she's very classy. She's independent. She's adventurous. She, and she's got her stuff together. And that's you. How old are these cars that are on the uh, advertisement? Um, it was usually with just the tires. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was usually with just the tires, cloth tires. Cloth tires. <laughs> yeah, that's how old this is. <laughs> yeah. That kind of remember reminds me of the old Montgomery Ward tires I used to get on my high school car when I didn't have enough money. It was all black and white, and it was just basically the nylon rayon tires, whatever it is, <laughs> the cheapest things in the world. And then you'd sit there and try and do figure eights on them, and you'd burn them out right away. But I'm sure you've never done that. <laughs> I definitely can't age myself that far back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I will not put you in that position. Yeah. So going back, what are the first cars you remember that your folks had? Because you grew up in South Dakota. Yeah. So we grew up with like 1968 to 72 GMC Jimmys or uh, Chevrolet Blazers or even just the pickup trucks. That was kind of like the body style that my dad fell in love with, that my mom used to race. We have photographs of her full-blown Prego on the starting line. The whole truck is stripped down, and she's, like, ready to race. Oh, so your mom also raced? Yeah. yeah. Okay, your grandma and your mom. I'm, I'm suggesting and I'm noticing some DNA connection here, maybe. It's totally in the genes. And then my father's a mechanical engineer, so he has the answers to everything. And if he doesn't, he's one of those that will find it as quickly as possible. Okay, I think we're beginning to understand a little bit about how you're wired. I see that. <laughs> I was born this way, but it's kind of weird because my brother and sister aren't. Now, they are mechanically inclined, and they do have a love for speed in its machines, but not nearly to the level that I have. So if you notice this early, I'm, I'm reading just some of the bio information that we talked, uh, had a chance to look at. You kind of went in a different direction, though, to start, correct? Yeah, I definitely wasn't looking into a career in the automotive field by any means. I wanted to be an architect when I was young. So I started taking all of the drafting classes and the design classes, and then I realized that you have to go to school for approximately 12 years to be an architect. And 12 years? Really? As, oh, it's forever. You're in school forever. And as much of a good student as I am, I can't sit in a classroom like that. I have to be involved. I have to get my hands on something. I got to do it. And I'm, I'm a visual learner. So it's I got to be busy. Mm -hmm. I can't sit in a classroom and, and enjoy it as much as I think I would like to. So you're, you're sitting in the class. Your, your fingers are tapping. Right there on the, and you're going, okay, this is really not making it for me. When did the light go on? Um, I don't think I really, really realized it until I was on my way to a basketball game and something was wrong with my car and I completely fixed it on the side of the street and still made it on time to the game. Now, that was back before cell phones and pagers and all that stuff. And I couldn't tell anybody like, hey, I'm on the side of the road, you know, uh -huh. but I fixed everything and I made it to the game. And I was like, I felt so accomplished 
that I was able to handle it without the help of anybody and still be able to do the rest of my day and carry on like nothing had ever happened. That was the moment where I was like, "Hmm, maybe I really do like cars. I already knew how much I loved driving them and I loved going on road trips. But when I was able to fix it, that's when I knew. What was your high school car? I don't even know if I'd like to admit this. Oh, come on. (laughs) Everybody's high school car wasn't necessarily the the one one they wanted. (laughs) Well, I always had the option of driving the 72 Blazer. But it, yeah, okay. But tell me the real car. <laughs> my, my my very first car that I actually ever paid for with my own money was a Plymouth Laser. Dum, dum, dum. A Plymouth Laser. Yeah, and then I wah, upgraded. Wah, wah, yeah, and wah. then I upgraded it to the Mitsubishi Eclipse. Ah, well, that and, at least was sporty. And then I upgraded even more all the way to the Eagle Talon, so I could have all-wheel drive. If I remember right, the Plymouth Laser actually thought it was sporty. <laughs> for the class it was in, wasn't it? It had the same body style as the other two. Yeah, exactly. So, it, But it was the cheap version. Yes. And, and there was probably like a strategically placed stripe or brighter color. What, what color was it? Do you oh, remember? it was turquoise. Bright turquoise. Well, it was bright. <laughs> it was bright. It was bright. But, you know, of course, I toned it down with all of my snowboarding stickers and ski racks. And, of course. And black wheels. Yeah. Of okay. Course, you know. Well, so you paid for the laser. Yeah, I paid for everything. By the way, she paid for the Plymouth Laser. I just want to make sure we made that straight. <laughs> but what was the car you had before that? Because usually the car that you get, the hand-me-down you get from mom or dad. Or was it that was, it? Well, it was an Eagle Talon, but I never ended up getting that car. That car was never – my brother – it went through my mom, through my brother, and through my sister. But it never made it to me. Ah, you were the youngest? I'm the youngest of three biological kids. Yeah, I have many more brothers and sisters beyond that, you know, divorce and <laughs> and adoption and all that kind of stuff. But I am the youngest of the biological kids. Yeah. All right. We're talking to Jesse Combs, who's joining us here on uh, Talking About Cars today. And we've seen you in a lot of places. Um, I remember seeing you on All Girls Garage. Uh, I remember seeing you on Overhauling. Yeah, way back in its first season. Yeah. Well, as an A-team member. As an A-team member. Now, define that for some of those who don't remember what A-team member is. It's the A-team. It's it's the crew that we choose to be able to, that's the best choice to get the car done in a week's worth of time. And how long does that usually take? We're having Chip come in here, I think, in a few weeks. And and I I'll probably him. ask him the same question. But And Chip's always seems to be a nice guy. I've had, we've had Chris Jacobs on the show. We've We've talked about a lot of things like this. But I always wondered, when you see the car... Okay, they're not doing it as much anymore, but back when you were in it, they always had this this sleuthing thing, the cloak and dagger stuff about the car was actually taken by a, a police impound lot and all that. Where did that come from? Oh, it was so much fun. Well, because the whole theme is that we trick you while we trick out your car. So we had to trick you some way, some form, some fashion to make you believe that your car was stolen or impounded or in an accident or something went wrong with it. And that's what Chris's job was because he is so good at that. And so he just kept tricking them like he was the tow truck driver. Or he was trying to hit on the girl who owned the car. You know, he's he's so good at that and he can just keep it going and keep it going. And yes, we did actually do it in seven days. In those first seasons, we did. We rebuilt the car in seven days. Did you sleep much? No, it's a 24 hour kind of wow. a deal. And, math, and Chip will probably end up doing the math for you. Who's Chip is like. One of my favorite guys on the entire planet. Can you believe the show went this long? <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? But it's so good because of what it does for the community, how it brings our team together. Um, Chip has just—he's just got such a big heart that you can see him moved by every single build he does. So it's—it's it's amazing for everybody involved. And the fact that he used to do the art, artwork and all that stuff—that's kind of neat. You know, I mean, you don't see many shows. There's a lot of shows out there nowadays, but he does that artwork. You know, when he sits there and sketches the whole thing, that's kind of fascinating. Especially when he draws upside down. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. He draws upside down? Yeah. Oh, he'll sit there and actually show the person and do it upside down? He'll sketch it upside down, yeah. Oh, wow. He'll do it for camera upside down. He's, He's an amazingly talented man. You know, we talked about your cars. Let me go back on that theme. What's in your garage right now? Right now, uh, let's try to go oldest. I have a 1967 Ironhead, Harley-Davidson. I have a 1974 Chevy G10 van. I have a 1985 Land Cruiser FJ60. 
I have a 2000 Toyota pickup truck, which is fully built as a pre-runner, desert pre-runner. And I have a 2004 Chevy van, which is 6.0 liter. That's like my tow truck. Mm-hmm. It's like pretty much my daily driver. Mm-hmm. And then I have my 2012 Triumph Bonneville motorcycle. Which, by the way, you drove here today. Yeah, that was my that was my mode of transportation today. I, I'd imagine going through Los Angeles traffic, you almost have to drive a motorcycle. I don't know how from. people go without motorcycles in L.A. I, it is the most stressful thing ever. And people are like, I could never split lanes like that. That is so dangerous. And I'm like, once you try it, you never want to go back to sitting in traffic. Because when everybody's sitting there, you get to keep going. Is there a car that you once had that maybe somewhere along the line, if you look back and had the opportunity, you try and get back? No. <laughs> no. I hear those stories all the time and like, oh, I wish I still had that car. Uh-huh. I'm going to be the one that has junk sitting in their front yard until like when I'm a really old lady and be like, I'm never going to get rid of that thing. <laughs> I have so many memories. No, I, I'll never do it because, and I'm very, I don't buy things on a whim to just buy and sell. I buy them because I have an emotional connection with them or because it's something that I've always wanted. So my fleet will get larger, but for now, that's. Yeah. I, I noticed that on car it. guys, too. I've talked to people, and, and again, to throw names out there, Matt Farah, for example, I asked him about that, and he goes, oh, I, I just don't sell things. You know, he and Jay Leno the same way. It's like, I just don't get rid of things. Oh, and you can tell when you go into Jay Leno's garage, too, that he doesn't well, get true. rid of anything at all. <laughs> but then there's other car guys that are just that I hear it so often. Maybe it's because of the because of my fans and the audience that I get to engage with on a constant level. And they're like, well, I used to have this car and man, I wish I still had it. And then, of course, with overhaul and we hear that all the time. You know, like, I got this car, but it went through, you know, I used to have it. It was my high school car. It was my dad's high school car. And then blah, blah. And it goes away and has its whole own story until it comes back to the original owner. So I don't want to have to ever go through that story. Okay, so you probably heard this story anyway. But how crazy is it? A lot of guys say if you're a car person, you have to have, if not the car you had in high school, some semblance of the car you had in high school. I will not go out and buy another Plymouth Laser. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> it's your high school car. Yeah, it was also the 90s. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there's not that's a true. lot of good stuff that was produced in those years. That's true. Yeah, those are cars you don't necessarily want to uh, keep track of after all that time. Um, (laughs) Is there a car out there that is – you have a list, I assume, of vehicles you kind of eye from afar if you had the money, regardless of how much. What is number one on the Jesse Combs On the expensive list? list? On the almost unobtainable list? I'll take either. I'll take the (laughs) uh, the ridiculously expensive list or the mildly affordable list. Okay. So actually an episode on the list, 1001 Car Things to Do Before You Die – which we will talk about in great depth. Yes. We um, had the opportunity to go to Italy and drive many cars, but the car that made me ultimately fall in love all over again was the Lamborghini Aventador. And how much? Uh, I have no idea how much that is. It's in upwards of $400,000. You can't afford that? <laughs> I mean, you know, with all the shows you're doing, wow. I, I can't really live in it, no. <laughs> That's true. You probably have to. I can see having one of those and then just putting like an awning in the back with a with a doughboy pool. That would be like the best thing. Check me out, bro. Headband and all. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the expensive one. What about the moderately affordable one? Moderately affordable, I think, would be somewhere around like maybe a Subaru STI five door, or maybe even a Cadillac CTSV. You know, something where the power to weight ratio kind of has its payoff. Something that's classy or sporty. I'm I'm a very diverse person, so it's hard to like if I had to pick like if there was a car that was equal to me, what would it be? That's a really hard one to nail down. So. I mean, I I love driving cars, whether they're old. I mean, just this past weekend, I was out at the race of gentlemen on the East Coast, and it's all everything's like nineteen pre or pre nineteen forty, and it was so much fun. And I'm driving. I was driving a nineteen thirteen Model T twin four banger, so we had two inline four cylinder engines, and it was a blast. I had 
no body panels, <laughs> no floorboards. I had nothing to keep me in line. It was basically frame rails, a grill shell, two engines, a seat, and a steering column. I just had a vision wheels. of Barney Oldfield. I don't know why. Just you know, except for the wheel was that strange looking contraption. There was just a bar going back and forth. No, nope, yeah. I had a wooden wheel that actually I ripped off. <laughs> Still was able On to purpose? win. No, it accidentally happened like right <laughs> off the starting line. I was still able to win the race, so I got lucky on that one. But, you know, surrounded by those Model A, Model T's, those, ah, there's a, such a love for those too, because it takes you back to where it all began. Yeah, I was looking at the list of so many things that you're involved in, and and you are like the Energizer Bunny. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm just looking at this thing. Well, so what's she doing now? Well, she's doing this and this. She's doing uh, the 1913 Race of Gentlemen. You're doing the Land Speed deal we're going to talk about a little bit you're you're writing a book yep desert racing off-road racing rock crawling do you rest do you do you sleep i believe it or not i actually got 11 hours of sleep last did night. you really but that's because they didn't get any over the weekend I see. <laughs> and i thought you were just worried about doing this interview okay then I, that, that's fine you're absolutely yeah i wanted to be really arrested for you oh thank you thank yeah. you and on behalf of all my listeners uh, i we appreciate that so much <laughs> Let me talk about the race of gentlemen. How did you get into that? How did you find out about it? And what really kind of lured you into that? Well, I have a lot of really amazing friends in the car world. And a couple of years ago, I went to Japan for the Yokohama Moon Ice Car Show. And I met a lot of really rad people, which is funny that I met a whole bunch of California people while I was in Japan. But it was it was like the heart and the true being of, of the, our car culture was in Japan at the same time. And I met Bobby Green. And Bobby Green is one of the originators of the event. And Craftsman is one of the sponsors for the event. And they were talking about how they fell in love with a female racer. And they're like, we want a girl to race this car. And they tried to do it last year, and it kind of fell through and fizzled out. And when that all came together, Bobby and I guess 20 other people name dropped me and said, Jesse's the perfect person to drive this car because I'm, I'm trained in every sorts of form of driving. So literally, if you put me in the car, I'll figure it out within five, 10 minutes. Now, to describe it, for those of you who have never heard of a race of gentlemen, I mean, you just say it and immediately you think of, you know, guys wearing 19... 10 outfits with, you know, the high collars and and the spectacle glasses and the, you know, the proper hats and driving these Model T's, you know, yeah. and uh, I'm taking it that isn't exactly how it is. No, that's almost exactly is it? how it is. And that's how they prefer it to be, that everybody dresses up, plays a part. So you have to dress up in, in typical garb, if you will. Oh, yeah. My race suit was definitely, it was white. It was old school. It was vintage. I had a leather helmet. I had the goggles. Puffy, I had... puffy outfit. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of like mean, Seinfeld's puffy shirt. Kind of made my my butt look a little big, but that's the way it was back in the day. I didn't ask that. I just want to let you know she <laughs> volunteered that information. Okay, please. Okay. Uh, so, is it it's an a, oval? No, it's on the beach, and okay. it's a drag race. So it's about an eighth mile drag race course. A drag race. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's car to car, and it's like you're basically picking who you want to race at the starting line. And you have a conductor who's basically picking it for you sometimes if you guys can't narrow it down. And every once in a while, he'll conduct, he'll bring in the motorcycles and he'll bring in some of the, the exhibition cars. And then there's a bracket race that goes on in the middle of it. It's it's like the most controlled chaos that I've ever been experienced because it was it was like there was no real structure to it. But I think that's part of what made it fun. It wasn't like it, like people were angry. It was one of the most relaxed, chill down-to-earth events I've ever been to. And everybody's dressed up, so it totally, in Wildwood, New Jersey, if nobody's ever been there, it's it's like you're going back in time. There's all these old vintage motels and diners. You literally feel you like you're back in the 40s, 50s, maybe. And it is so cool. Like, I got on the airplane, and I didn't get the culture shock back into reality mm -hmm. until I hit LAX airport. And I was like, oh, tight pants, crazy shirts. This is weird. <laughs> this is totally weird. Because everybody is dressed so vintage during you, this event. You mentioned it's a drag race of sorts on a beach. On a beach. I'm taking a wild guess. And again, since I've been striking out already on this, what the... Um, there isn't really a lot of G-force when you pull off from the uh, from the. <laughs> there's no Christmas tree, I take it, no. or, is, or is there just somebody waving a handkerchief like from the fifties? No, or there's something a flag like girl. There's a flag, there is girl. A flag girl. Oh yeah, and she's amazing. Actually, that girl can jump so high. It, she she, she jumps, owns it, oh, and yeah. she's wearing the garb. Oh yeah, everybody's wearing the garb, and then and that way because 
pretty much any photograph that anybody's taken, the photographers have to dress that way. The officials have to dress that way. Do they use cameras that had that stuff that goes poof? Some of them. Some of the photographers will put their cameras inside a box that looks like one of the old cameras. (laughs) But for the most part, they're just dressed that way. I see. (laughs) Yeah. But it's it's so cool because you got the roller coaster in the background and the Ferris wheel. Every photograph looks like it's So nobody burns tires, I guess, is what I'm saying right out the top because of the old... Okay. I mean, you're you're definitely rooster tail on some sand, that's for sure. There's some super fast cars that these guys have built. Okay. They put a lot of time and dedication into the race of gentlemen cars. Now, is this something that's on TV? Is this something that we can see? or is this... You can go to their website. Um, we, Craftsman, has been filming the build of the car, and there will be a small episode to go for the race itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, there were camera guys and film crews, and you name it, you'll be able to find it anywhere online for sure. But it's theraceofgentlemen.com. I was going through some of your bio information, and yeah. I... And I thought it was interesting that that you had gone, as we discussed earlier, gone into the home decorating, if you will, the (laughs) architecture, if you will. You studied for that. And then you kind of made the detour and you went to Wyotech. Yeah. Is that I might be skipping a couple of things here, but no. I mean, for the most part, when I when I was graduating high school, I had a full ride scholarship for interior design. Mm-hmm. Architecture school was way too long for me, so I kind of dialed it back, and I was going to do interior design. I could use my my textures and my colors and my creativity, and still be able to design. And so that ended up getting down to the point where I had everything. That, my roommate. I was ready to leave in two weeks. I had gone shopping for dishes, you name it, because this is, you know, going out into the real world. Uh And then I realized I'm not ready for this just yet. I grew up in Rapid City, South Dakota, super conservative area, not associated with anything cool. I hadn't experienced life yet. I needed to just go out and explore. So I took five years off and then I went to Wyotech. And over those five years, that's when I was like, okay, I really do love cars. For all of the, all, I mean, I was, I would do nine month road trips. Yeah. Between my cars, my motorcycles, you name it. I was always on the road, always having fun, going on adventures. And before you know it, that's when I realized that, okay, I need to get an education in something. And what I find most passionate in is cars. Best road trip you were on? All of them. <laughs> I don't have a bad road trip. One that sticks out, maybe? The, the, it's always the one in the moment when you think it's the worst because everything's breaking. You get lost. You run out of gas. You get stopped by all the creepy people. And it ends up being the one that you have the most memories about and the most. But it was probably one of them was my nine-month road trip where I started in Minnesota. I left Minnesota. went to South Dakota. hung out with my mom for a little bit. Went down and hung out with my dad for a little bit in Arizona. And then I headed east and went to Louisiana and then Georgia and then Florida and the Bahamas. And then I cruised back. When I was in the Bahamas, I ran into one of my col- my snowboarding buddies from Colorado. I ended up going... That's another thing. You at one time tried to be a snowboarder. Yeah, I was a pro snowboarder for a minute. Hot minute. A minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was back when girls weren't getting paid to snowboard and I, was, I, I wasn't compensating the finances of my hospital bills versus my... Ah, hospital bills. Yeah. You know, it sounds like what you're talking about here is you you love these trips because you basically have survivor's euphoria. (laughs) You you get to a situation where, oh, my God, I don't think I'm going to be able to get through this. And then all of a sudden I get through this and, you know, you have like adrenaline rush or something like that. No, this this is the weird thing about me, I think, is that I I am not going to make it as a psychologist. Go ahead. Is that um, I stay very calm in high-stress situations. I don't freak out. I can think methodically through things. That's one of one of the reasons why I believe that I'm a good racer, because my heart rate doesn't get up ever. Like, the highest it's ever gotten in any one of my races is 120 BPM. Really? Yeah. I'm usually floating around 85, 90 BPM during a race. That's my average. So, do you get into a zone kind of thing? I do. I do. I I truly believe that if there's anywhere I belong, it's in the driver's seat of something, especially when I can race against other people and I can try and figure out my my passing strategies and race strategies. And yeah, I I belong in the driver's seat for sure. How long do you think it took you when you were getting into the automotive business and you you were getting immersed in the shows and, and making that transition in a sense from the automotive business to doing it on television and stuff that people, did they take you seriously off the top? They still don't take me seriously. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. They still I mean, I do I think over these years I've definitely changed a lot of people's perspectives as far as women in the industry, but in, in the same turn there's I still get so many people like, "Do you really know how to weld?" 
Mm-hmm. Do you really think that you can go out there and beat these guys in that race? Girls don't have what it takes to, they don't have the balls. Can I say that? <laughs> you just did. <laughs> they don't, you know, We're a like, podcast. You can say anything. But girls just don't have what it takes to live in a male-dominated world. And I think I'm living proof that we do. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact that you're succeeding. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be a big plus right there. And the fact that you're, I don't want to say you're trailblazing because others have tried, but I mean, the fact that you're succeeding, that's got to make you feel pretty good. It really does, especially this day and age. You know, we've, us women in the industry have, have gone through a roller coaster as far as, yes, we're needed. No, stay home. Yes, you do a really great job and you can have attention to detail and think methodically and no, stay home. And then it's like, okay, yes, women can work in these industries and be a corporate person again. And then it's like, no. Now this world is lazy and society is going through a whole different change right now because of technology and we don't have to lift a finger because everything's right at our fingertips. How does that affect uh, you in the career that you're in? Uh, Well, I think it opens up more doors because there's more opportunity because nobody's taking action in it. But in the same turn, though, like here, a lot of us are going out, breaking all these barriers, breaking all of these stereotypes. But then there's still these girls that don't even know that they can even drive a car, open the hood or change their own oil or change their own tire, like very simple tasks that they have no clue that it's okay for them to do it. Does that drive you crazy? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there is no question tell me what do you it. really think <laughs> no it, and that's that is can be very true because you take a look at some people that some women will just not even want to get under the hood yeah i mean it's it's a reason why i started real deal real deal is all about promoting and empowering women in the automotive industrial arts put tools in their hands so they know what it feels like to melt metal so they to, throw some sparks into and, and shit. And talk no. about that, like um, metal fabrication. I mean, when you go in, and, and correct me how if I'm wrong, I've been doing so well. Um, when you went into the Wyotech, for example, did you start off by, oh, okay, I'm going to learn engines, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, or did you go for the metal fabrication angle? No, I actually went in because I wanted to do custom painting. Oh, okay. But I had a few skill sets going in, and welding was one of them. And, you know, I learned it in high school in shop class. It's what we did. Mm -hmm. And now there aren't shop classes and nobody knows that that's even a thing, you know, like, or welding is dirty. I don't want to go over into that tech side, to the Votech part of my school. That's where all of the losers go. And it's like, (laughs) um, not anymore, because there's so many rad things that you can do with those skills. But... Have the shows that have been on television, like uh, the Velocity shows, the Discovery shows, uh, and back in its day, the Speed Network shows, the fact that it raised the idea of all these opportunities for mechanical and that kind of stuff, did it really raise interest, do you think, among people, women and men, for uh, this type of thing? What I hear a lot when, especially with All Girls Garage, is that my wife will now finally watch automotive television with me. She'll sit down on the couch and she'll watch and she'll pay attention. And it was because I was on Extreme 4x4 or whatever automotive show it was. And then when All Girls Garage came around, it was like, oh, it's not just Jesse. There's more girls that do this. And that's why I think it's so good that I'm not on the show anymore because it gives an opportunity to let other girls come through and show that they have skill sets too, that there's more than just four of us. You know, there's going to be more and more and more coming out into the industry. That we are capable of doing these things. And, of course, All Girls Garage, how did that come around? Uh, That was an idea that I had had long before I left Extreme Mm 4x4. And I just wanted to do exactly what I just said, to show that girls can do this, that I'm not this unicorn in the automotive world. Because... When women work with each other, they learn better from each other because there's no no longer is that that intimidation factor there. It all kind of goes away. And I can use it when it has nothing to do with cars. Say, for example, wakeboarding. You take a boat full of guys and girls and you might get a girl or two to ride it. But that's usually like one of the good riders. Right. And she likes it or really doesn't care what anybody thinks. Mm -hmm. But then you take a boat full of chicks out. Every girl will ride at least three or four times. Because that intimidation factor is completely gone. So when you get girls together and you put them in an environment where it's a comfortable learning environment and they can work well together and they're really there to kind of lift each other up, they're going to learn something and they're going to learn it in a way that actually resonates with them and lasts. You know, I think it's kind of fun to go back uh, and try and figure out that point where your career really took off. 
And, and I, and it seems to me, it, from what I've seen, it was a video that you had to do, kind of an audition tape. Was that anything to do? With? I don't know. You tell me. All right, keep going. Keep going. All right. According to <laughs> what's on your website, let's see. Um, uh, apparently, when you had to, uh, let's see, Extreme Four by Four. Did you have to do an audition tape for Spike TV? I did. You did? Yeah. Okay, so I'm not crazy. Is this out in the public? I'm like, have you seen this? I have not seen the video. (laughs) And luckily, we're only a podcast, so we can only play the audio. Can we play the audio, please? No. (laughs) What kind of music did you use? That's what I'd like to know. Oh, it was so terrible. Tell, tell me about the uh, uh, incredible audition tape. Well, you know, it kind of came up really quick. I was working for Wyotech as a, what was my name? Master fabricator. I think it was my title working for Wyotech. And I was building their show cars for them after I graduated. And I thought it was great because I had immediate employment outside of school. And I didn't have to move. <laughs> I could just stay <laughs> living in Laramie, Wyoming. And um, those cars were used as marketing tools with the marketing department. And they could go out and tell their story. And that marketing department also had good relationships with production companies. So one day, RTM Productions calls up and says, hey, we're looking for somebody to host this off-road television show that we're starting. And, of course, they're like, well, you need Jessie because Jessie loves off-road. That's how she got her start. She's a great worker. She's got an attention to detail that's unlike any other. She's a hard worker. Like, she's a... She's class president, shop president, you know, like I, I was, I was, I was everything that I, some people call me overachiever, but I just can't. I would never call you that. <laughs> but I would just never, I don't like being bored. I like, I got to keep myself busy. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so you, the marketing director came to me, asked if I was interested and to think about it. And if I was get my resume ready and we'll do a video interview the next day. And I was like, well, what have I got to lose? So at the time I was building a 1964 Mercury Cyclone. And it had a roll cage in it, and I was showing all of the adjustments that we could do with the suspension and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm pretty sure that my high crack line was hanging out of my pants. <laughs> and I was wearing a ring and was hitting the body pan. I mean, it was just like, you name it, anything that could go wrong went wrong. Mm-hmm. And somehow I ended up getting the job. I don't know how. They didn't edit it. They didn't do anything to it. All I did was showing what I did to this car and just talking about it. And that was it. And then it seemed like a week later I was flying out and I did an audition with 13 other dudes. And Did you dress the same? Did you wear the same ring? (laughs) Did that help? I did. I did. You know, (laughs) my director pulled it up and it's not something I hope it never presents itself because it's just like I am so glad how I've progressed over the years and how comfortable I am in front of the camera versus where I was 13 years ago. I think after listening to this, we're going to have to do a TV version of this just so we can find that tape somewhere. <laughs> I'm just saying. No. It, it probably won't be next week, but I'm just saying. Bob, can we cut that out? <laughs> <laughs> we'll just, we'll just keep on moving. So the all-girls garage concept came aboard, and, and it seems that that could have been something that really lifted you, at least if nothing else, into the TV world. And And there was also a story about you had done a car that got you a lot of notice at SEMA. That was probably the the 1964 Mercury Cyclone, but that okay. was 13 years ago. That was that was literally before I even got onto television. I mm-hmm. finished that car and then I moved to Nashville, Tennessee. And what was in Nashville? Oh, that's where they did that's the show. That's where Extreme 4x4 was. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, All Girls Garage was one of the latest ventures. And where did they shoot that? That's in Florida. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Why, why are you whispering? What? What? Did... Sometimes these television shows like to keep themselves quiet uh-huh. because so many people want to come and visit and watch, and they want to be a part of the studio production, and they just simply can't. It's closed studio, so we try and keep it as quiet as possible because we get a lot of weird fans. Jesse Combs joining us here on uh, talking about cars. I, I'm having a great time with you. I think you you have such great stories, but you do bring up something interesting. Uh, what would it be like to do a show like All Girls Garage with an audience? Uh, we would probably get so many hecklers because it's, ah. you know, it's it's one of those things like if you're a car guy uh-huh. and you actually work on your cars, you know that nothing goes right. And no matter how much you wanted to or how talented you are, you're working on your cars. There's at some point you're going to throw your wrenches throughout the day. 
It's mm-hmm. just going to happen. But when you're doing it in front of a live audience, people are going to be like, oh, you should have done it this way or you righty tidy, <laughs> lefty loosey. Like we don't know what we're doing. And it's like and we wouldn't be able to get anything done. OK, That's- the female show. OK, let's mm-hmm. take that out of the equation. What if you did something really macho like the extreme four by four something like that? Uh, actually, you know, come to think of it, the, the audience would get too impatient. They really would, and because yeah. it's really boring to watch this stuff. That's why we edit these shows. You don't want to see us tightening every bolt and laying every weld bead. Like that is not fun. It does not take ten minutes to drop the whole front end and then put a brand new upgraded one in. No, it doesn't. As much as we would like it to, it's false advertising. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. Well, you've got an opportunity to do all sorts of fun shows as well. I I was looking at the one about um, the list. Uh, I first thing that I noticed the list one a thousand and one car things to do before you die. I thought, how cool is that? You have a thousand and one episodes to 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 do. You're going to be employed forever. That's the whole purpose. Because we thought about doing a hundred and one, but then we would limit ourselves. Like, what if we reach a hundred and one? Then what? So we just had a thousand and one. Was it hard to come up with a thousand and one? Oh, we haven't even gotten to a hundred yet. So we have so much more room to go. Well. And the network or whoever is doing it. Well, no, AOL's doing this, correct? We are commissioned by AOL. So mm-hmm. we've been online for the last four years. We've won Webby Awards, which are equivalent to the Grammy Awards mm-hmm. for travel and adventure. We are ridiculously proud of what we've produced. But I think a lot of it has to do with is because of the team. We have an amazing team. My director is awesome. My director of photography, my my co-host Patrick, we're all like brothers and sisters. We're all we've all become family. We've traveled around the world with each other a couple times now and we'll do it a hundred times over because we just work so well together. I saw you do the one with Rome where you're driving a little Fiat through Rome. A Fiat bar. Yes. You were basically like the typical couple. You were driving for a while. He was driving for a while. And you were just going back and forth and looking around and making observations and sniping at each other. It was almost like I was, are you guys a couple? No, we're not. No, Patrick okay. is happily married. Right. and Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then you're brothers and sister. A brother and sister. Then. Totally. All right. Totally. But you guys were, you guys were a crack up because it seemed like... There was always something going on, and the other one's going, what are you doing? You know, just, are you out of your mind? What are Where you... are we going? What are we supposed to be doing? What's that over there? And you literally were driving on your own, or did you have a route that you were trying to follow? No, we got lost so many times. Okay, so when you watch that episode, there's the, there's a segment where it's like, ching, 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 and you start seeing all these receipts popping up. Okay. Those are all of our tickets that we got. I of... saw that. You actually got those tickets? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you watch, and also if you watch the uh, Tale of the dragon episode i get pulled over that's a real ticket none of that is fake like we this is like a real show this is an experiential show of the things that can happen to you when you're doing the things that we do so how many tickets did you get in rome uh a lot there I mean, was isn't a, there a point where they pull you off the road and say you can't do this anymore don't, don't. no because it's like just like cameras and so they send them to you later Oh. Yeah, so they were coming in the mail like two or three months later. (laughs) Post-production. It was all laid in and post. I got it. It was over $1,000 worth of fines. Really? Oh, yeah. But we didn't realize what was going on because you can only drive down certain roads if you have a certain pass. It's kind of like one of our easy passes, right? Mm -hmm. And we didn't have that pass, but we didn't know that what to read to know what the times were so there were certain times of the day where you can drive through those streets without the pass but most of the time you had to have the pass and we didn't have it do you actually have a thousand and one things on that list or are you making them up as you go along we have a pretty extensive list but yeah we continue to make them up as we go along it's kind of like MythBusters, you know mm-hmm. how many myths can you really bust until you start getting an audience involved in it and start offering suggestions now you're on that show as well I was, yeah. I filled in for Carrie's maternity leave for an mm-hmm. entire season. What was your favorite myth buster that you busted? My my favorite myth that we busted? Or myth that you couldn't bust? Um, You know, um, it was probably skipping across water, um, mainly because it was, you know, based off of Cannonball 3, and we got to do fast cars, Fieros. <laughs> Which is the closest car that we could get as far as weight balance, and that one Wait, was. You tried to skip a Fiero off the water? Across the water, yeah. Because really? you know, at the beginning of Cannonball Three, yeah. he skips across water and evades the cops. Right. Well, that's exactly what we were doing to see if it's even possible 
And we found that it is possible as long as you don't have a jump before you go into the water. So you can actually skim across water. And we made it. We made it all the way across. It wasn't really pretty or graceful, but we did it. So it's plausible in a fiero. Yes. Well, it's nice to know something you could do with a fiero. That's good. <laughs> all right. Come on. By the way, all you fiero people, tell all your club members to... Uh, My dad is a fiero people. Is he really? <laughs> yeah. All right. Did you use dad's fiero? No, but okay. he's like, if those make it, can I have one when it's done? <laughs> well, you had to make some modifications on it, right? Yeah. By the time we were... Because we did our first testing. We had two different Fieros. So we found that we had to completely block off the front so water couldn't go into the grill shell and slow us down. You know, basically put a skid plate underneath of it to mm-hmm. keep it so it could skip. You had to basically do what they did on that James Bond movie. Remember the one that went on the Fiat that went underwater? Mm-hmm. You almost had to, like, cover that whole thing up because the wheel holes, for lack of a better term. It was, we didn't have to go as far back, but yeah, we had, to, we definitely had to get the whole front and pretty much almost right behind the front wheels. That's a lot of work. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> that, that was my hardest thing about working on Mythbusters is because I'm used to building things to mm-hmm. show them off and to use them and to race them. And, you know, it's going to be used in such a great way. And on Mythbusters, we were building it to destroy it. And I had such a hard time with that. When you go through some of the other lists, uh, items on the on the list, what is still coming up that you are looking forward to doing? Um, I, or maybe one you've done that we haven't seen yet? Uh, I think all the episodes are up right now. I would say the one the one that I was looking forward to that we finally got to do is learn how to drive on two wheels. That one was a really fun one. Yeah. The, the next one that we're going to be doing, I think we're planning on, don't, don't quote me on this, but is escape a car before it falls off a cliff. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I could have sworn you just said escape a car before it goes off a cliff. Yes. How much, how much room are you giving before it goes off a cliff? I, I don't know. I hope it's a limousine. <laughs> a limousine. I'm hoping it's one of those that's like teetering on the edge of a cliff and we have to like figure out a way to do our own body weight transfer and do it right so we don't fall off. There's a commercial, I believe. I just saw that commercial, the one where the guy's holding onto a bowling ball mm-hmm. and his friend's trying to tell him to, you can let the bowling ball go. And he goes, no. I can't. I, I really love it. And he put it on some sort of website and some mountain climber just appears out of nowhere and says, oh, I'll buy the bowling ball. And the guy goes, oh, OK. Gives him the bowling ball, gives him the money. And he, he's, he survives. <laughs> uh, that's what you want to do, though. You want a car actually teetering on a cliff. Yes. Whether or not we actually do it, that's the next thing. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Well, like one of the biggest ones that we had that had the most views was escaping a car from underwater. So if you were like on an icy bridge or something, you fell off a bridge or you drove off a cliff and you're in water and you get knocked out and you wake up and your car is sinking, what do you do? And I tell you what, even though we had all of the safety measures, we had oxygen tanks, you know, we had everything. We had a scuba diver with us. There was no way that we could have gotten hurt. It was one of the most nerve-wracking things I've ever done before in my life. Not claustrophobic? I'm not claustrophobic at all, but I think it's just the thought of drowning. That'd do it for me. It's it's really scary to, put, to like force yourself in that situation, for sure. Well, they, I would imagine you had people waiting to rescue you if something went a little goofy. Yeah, we had a scuba diver in the car with us. Oh, Okay. I mean, like, there was no way we could have died. No okay. way. There well, was... that's good. And even with that mental thought process there, knowing that we were 100% safe, it was still really scary. Think about, like, just think about if you were in that situation and if you were knocked out and you come to and your car is sinking or you already have sunk, like, what's next? Yeah. You know, what I, do you do? I'm listening to this and I keep thinking back to when you first got into this business mm-hmm. and you were going, oh, I want to be a TV person that does work on cars and maybe host a show that somewhere down the line, hosting a show would mean I'm going to get into a car that's under the water and risk my life, even though you're not really risking your life. I mean, was that really, did that even cross your mind when you decided I want to be a celebrity? I didn't even decide I wanted to be a celebrity. That's still like, I still don't want to be a celebrity. I just want to, I want to share this mission and, and show that, show the world that if I can do it, they can do it. Like I was just, when I was just going to go and go back to Rapid City, South Dakota and build motorcycles for chicks and that's all I really wanted to do and it blew up into this whole wonderful world of automotive where I've got to work with some of the most amazing people and build some of the coolest cars and go on some of the raddest adventures I was not planning on being a celebrity anywhere in there it just happened 
Jesse Combs joining us here on Talking About Cars. I have to mention this, and, and I'm curious your take on it. When you were on Extreme 4x4, you, were, you suffered a serious injury. Yeah, I had a 550-pound uh, industrial-sized bandsaw freakishly fall on me while we were setting it up. If I could explain it to you, I totally would, but I still don't understand it to this day. That was it eight, nine years ago now. It fell on you. It fell on me. It fell yeah. over? It fell over and tacoed my head to my knees, fell on my back, tacoed my head to my knees, and burst fractured my L3. So my L3 basically became mashed potatoes. Um, I have an L1 through L4 vertebrae fusion. And my doctors call me a miracle case because I should have been paralyzed that day. How long did it take for you to recover? Uh, well, my doctors call me the Wolverine. I heal really, really fast. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just because I'm overly determined or I got some magical healing powers. I have no idea what it is. But... I don't know why when you mentioned Wolverine, I immediately looked at your hands. <laughs> I just wanted to see. If, is there any uh, anything that popping out of there? No. no okay. We're good. All right. All we're right. totally good. This would have been a much shorter interview if I had seen something pop out of there. I just want to say. I would love to be an X-Men. I think that would be pretty cool. How do you credit the fact, though, and I get the feeling just meeting you and your determination. You have a, you, you have a streak that once you set your mind on something, you don't let go. I don't. I, I don't give up. And in fact, it's that's one of my mottos is never give up. I, I don't have a choice to do that. There's the like if that's the decision I made, I need to stick with it unless for some weird, ginormous miracle I don't know, crazy thing happens and I just literally cannot do it, then that's one thing. But no, if I set my mind to it, I'm going to do it. And it's it's a blessing and a curse in the same th- in the same term because now I have way too many things that I have to do. <laughs> <laughs> in business, that's an asset though. It is. It really is if you have a if you have a team to help you execute. Finding somebody to keep up with you socially, that may be another story, but in a business situation, that's a complete asset. Yeah, to, to have a team that can keep up with you, you said it yourself, it is very difficult to find somebody who can operate at the level, at the speed of which you can think 10 steps ahead of me. Um, and so I'm constantly spinning my wheels. I'm constantly working on another project I'm <laughs> or 15 of them at the same time. Yeah, there's always. I admire that because I, if I go through more than two, I'm like, well, that's it for me, ladies and gentlemen. I think I've, uh, I think I need to take a nap. One thing at a time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you were talking about eleven hours sleep. Yeah, I kind of need a little bit of that. I think. I got twelve. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Landspeed.com. Yeah. I'm fascinated by this in the sense because we've talked about so many things that you've done, mm-hmm. yet here we are talking about going as fast as you can. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to do donuts. It's another thing to stick yourself in a situation where you're you're going to hang off a cliff. You, my dear, are a thrill seeker. But give me the information about the North American Eagle and, and what that's all about. The North American Eagle is a land speed car. It's based off an F-104 Starfighter jet without wings. And so it's got the J-79 jet engine, which is relates to approximately 48,000 horsepower. And we are setting out to bring the world land speed record back to the United States. My role for the team is to break the female land speed record, which currently sits at 512 miles an hour. Okay, so we're talking green monster, basically. We're talking super fast. We're How talking f- like taking off in a fighter jet, but never actually taking off. Well, at least you know it's not going to uh, have trouble landing and taking off. That's a, that's pretty good. I did have to I did have to be trained on how to fly in order to be able to pilot this jet. How long did that take? A couple couple hours. And yeah. the thought of you doing 500 miles an hour doesn't bother you? No, it doesn't. I mean, there's there's always that risk factor that you have to think about. But it, when the moment you start thinking about it, the moment you start turning around the other way. And you start having second thoughts. And I don't like second thoughts. <laughs> I like going with my initial thought. My gut feeling is good. My gut feeling is really good. The car is solid. So far, I've driven 440.709 miles per hour. My land speed record currently sits at 398 miles an hour with um, as the fastest woman on four wheels. So once I break that 512 mile an hour record, which was set by Kitty O'Neill back in 1976 in a three-wheeled rocket car, which is why I'm the fastest on four wheels and Kitty is still the fastest on Earth. No wonder you hate L.A. traffic. Yeah, it's miserable. You also wrote a book. How'd you get involved in that? 
Well, um, and it's a kids' book. It's a children's book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's called Joey and the Chopper Boys, and it's about a little girl who rides motorcycles. And she grew that's what she knows. And then she has to move to a new neighborhood, and she didn't think that she was going to find anybody who rode motorcycles. And lo and behold, across the street there was a group of boys, but they wouldn't accept her because she was a girl. So it goes through this whole series of how she does all of these tricks and all this stuff to try and impress the boys to become part of them because they just live right across the street. And so she ended up having to come out on the smart end and do something else to be able to try and win them over. Okay. By the way, if you've just joined us and you haven't been keeping score, uh, Jessie is a kid's book author. Uh, She races cars. She builds cars. She tears apart cars. Does the same with motorcycles. What is left on your list of I want to do that? (laughs) I want to do everything. There's so many things I haven't done yet. (laughs) Toss a couple my way. Um, I would love, I don't know, try the pro drift circuit for a little while. And I know a lot of people bring up NASCAR or like IndyCar or Formula One, which would be pretty rad. Um, I've I've raced the Baja 1000 and podium finished at that. I've done a lot of the things that I want to do. I think I just I want to I want to keep doing these things because why stop here? Why should I only race in one series when I can race and be successful in many series? You're an amazing lady. Thank you. I keep saying wow, but it's it's pretty it is amazing. There are a lot of things that you've been involved with and uh, Jesse Combs has joined us here. Where are we going to see you if people want to see you on TV? What's running that you're on? Uh right now, thank God, the only show that I'm doing and I say thank God because it's a lot of work to be a television host. I know a lot of people are like, "Oh, all you do is put on makeup and stand in front of a camera," but not not a mode of television. We're busting our butts all day long to work on these cars, to put them together. I mean, we're building them as we film them. And if the cameras are down, we are doing everything we possibly can to advance the show. So there's a lot of work. We have to plan them. We have to get the parts. And it's not just one project at a time. It's multiple projects at a time. You know, like when you think about how long it takes you to build your hot rod in a garage, some guys are like, oh, that took me 10 years to build that car. It took me 10 months to build that car. Well, we're building them in a matter of weeks, if not a day, depending upon what show I'm on. The late Jesse Combs, who passed away at the age of 39. This according to her mother, who told the website Jalopnik that all of the Wikipedia references were wrong about Jesse, and she was actually born in 1980, not 1983. So again, she died at 39. Thanks for listening, and please share our show on social media. Subscribe. It's absolutely free. And leave a comment if you're on iTunes. Rate us and review us. Thanks in advance for helping our podcast grow. Remember, our website is TalkingAboutCars.net. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we're also on Radio.com, KNX1070.com, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Again, just to name a few. Until next time, I'm Randy Crudoon. Join me as we have some fun looking back and looking ahead on Talking About Cars.